This is an ABC podcast. X. V. X again. W. Well, it's not making any sense, is it? Hello, Kirsty Melville here with you. And today, the History Listen takes place in a remote World War I prisoner of war camp where two captives bamboozle their Turkish guards into helping them escape through the use of a handmade Ouija board. For this bizarre escape plan to work, these two prisoners of war, Harry Jones and Cedric Hill, must lead their captors on a false treasure hunt. The ruse will also require the POWs to be mind readers, to feign mental illness, to fake suicide, and to endure six months in a Turkish insane asylum. To summon up their spirits, producer Lynn Gallagher speaks to author Margalit Fox. This story is one of charlatans and seances. The seances are how the charlatans pretend to summon up the spirit world. Seances are usually performed in the dark with a Ouija board, a set of letters randomly arranged in a circle on a flat surface so the spirit can point one letter at a time to what it wants to say. B. E. X. And for author Margalit Fox, this combination makes for one of the most eccentric breakout stories in history. Her book about it, The Confidence Men, begins like this. This is the true story of the most singular prison break ever recorded. It relied on a scheme so outrageous it should never have worked. Yet that scheme, an ingeniously planned, daringly executed confidence game, was precisely the method by which the young captives, Elias Henry Jones and Cedric Waters Hill, sprang themselves from Yozgad, a prisoner of war camp deep in the mountains of Anatolia. Yozgat, as the town is now called, is in central Turkey. As a prison camp back in 1916, any prisoner attempting escape would have had to have survived a 10-day journey through rugged mountains, a desert and badlands just to reach the nearest railway station in Ankara. The two heroes of our story, Elias Jones... It amounts to this. The Commandant believes in the spook. And Cedric Hill... The whole thing worked beautifully. and was even more effective than I expected. ...were tricksters even before the war. (laughs) Despite the odds, they were determined to escape. But the remote location wasn't their only problem. Kate Ariotti, who's an expert on Australian POWs of the Ottomans and the author of Captive Anzacs, says the other issue was reprisals. Escape was quite a complicated issue for many POWs of the Ottomans. The practicalities of it were very challenging and the physical requirements of an escape, so long journeys on foot across tough terrain, exposed to the elements, was just too much. 
But there's also a lot of tension between POWs about escape. Some believed it was their duty to try and escape and get back to the fighting fronts. Others were very aware that escape attempts often led to group punishments or reprisals, and so they were much less enthusiastic. So there were some escape attempts, but they were all pretty much unsuccessful. It's what makes our two audacious wannabe escapees so remarkable. Except for the prison camp, Jones and Hill would never have met. Jones was a Welshman and a barrister. He was educated at Oxford, and when war broke out, he was working under British command as a magistrate in Burma. From there, he was dispatched to the Persian Gulf to fight the Ottomans. He was captured in what is now Iraq in 1916 during a battle known as the Siege of Kut. Hill, on the other hand, was a mechanic on a sheep station in Queensland when war broke out. He went to London to join the British Flying Corps because Australia didn't have an air force at the time. But after a number of successful bombing raids, he too was captured during a reconnaissance mission over Palestine. His plane was shot down. Hill was brilliant manually. He could make anything, build anything, and importantly, was an accomplished conjurer. The two made a perfect team. Jones with his ideas and Hill with his hands. But first, they had to get to know each other. How far would you go to get away from Yozgat? You're not joking. No. To get away from this damned country. I'll go all out. I won't be retaken alive. Well, there may be a chance. By this time, Jones and Hill had already been conducting seances to entertain their fellow prisoners. They'd made an eccentric Ouija board of their own where the letters of the alphabet were pasted onto a wooden ring on top of a sheet of iron. And the pointer that indicated the letters was a glass jar that had once been used for potted meat. Jones, who, in Hill's words, was an arch leg puller, wanted to play a practical joke. And because he was a tender-hearted man, he also felt he wanted to do something to lift his comrade's spirits. He happened to have a nearly photographic memory, and very quickly he had internalized the random positions of these 26 letters around the board. So first with his eyes closed and then even blindfolded, he subtly started guiding this drinking glass to letters that spelled out actual words, and he created a whole panoply of talkative spirits very wisely, what he, whom do men in captivity for years and years want to hear from? The first ghost he created was Sally, who was a very saucy wench and apparently told the men all sorts of salacious things that delighted them. And each night, more and more men started to crowd around the board, and they all got involved. Now, it's important to note that at this point, it was nothing more than a practical joke and amusement for all of these officers. S. L. L. Why? Silly. No. 
Sally. Yes, Sally. Hi, Sally. Who are you? D. O. N. Don't. B. B. R. U. D. Rud. Rude. Don't be rude. <laughs> One of the biggest problems for the prisoners, and certainly the prisoners who held officer rank and so were not um, expected to work, was boredom. They were stuck with the same people, they were eating the same food, they were listening to the same stories, and there was no end in sight. So in many officer camps, it wasn't unusual to be able to watch a theatrical or a musical performance, to attend an educational class or a lecture, or of course, sport and other games were really popular as well. Or like at Hill and Jones's camp, attend a seance or watch some conjuring tricks. Yeah, some of the clubs that happened, they do make the war sound something out of a TV sitcom. (laughs) Yes, I know. And I think that links back to why a lot of these stories are not very well known because the dominant motif of the First World War, certainly in Australia and and Britain, is the Western Front. It's industrialised warfare, it's barbed wire and machine guns and flamethrowers and carnage. And so when these POW officers in particular came home and they were talking about, you know, oh, we spent hours debating or we put together a camp newsletter or um, in one camp that I read about, they actually had a butterfly collection club. So their stories were really jarring against that idea of fighting on the Western Front in particular. These seances also helped the men feel connected to the world because through these seances, Jones was able to share war news that he'd received in coded letters from home. He had to do it this way because news of the war was intelligence that was strictly forbidden to prisoners. However, if the news came from a ghost... W... O... You. At some point, Jones, still only making a practical joke, conceived of the most powerful dominant ghost of all, called simply the spook. And the spook became the central figure in everything that followed. What was fascinating is by the spring of 1917, it's still just a practical joke at this point, the spook begins serving as a war correspondent. And through the Ouija board, painstakingly, letter by letter, the spook spells out authentic news about the progress of the war. Things like Baghdad has finally fallen to the British, which happened in the spring of 1917. Now, Jones maintained that the source of this news was the military gossip that apparently suffuses the afterlife. Who knew? The actual source of this war news were from coded messages that prisoners were busy exchanging with their families in Britain. 
And it was this conveying of war news through the spook that gave Jones the sense of his own power. One day inside the camp, an edict appeared forbidding the sharing of war news obtained through a seance. And when Jones saw this, he then knew that the Turkish camp commandant believed in the spook. One day, a remarkable memorandum was posted in the camp. It forbade prisoners from conveying, in the letters they wrote home to Britain, news obtained by officers in a spiritistic state, which is a wonderful phrase. But what delighted Jones even more when he read that memo was the knowledge that it must have come from the commandant and that that meant the commandant saw the spirit world as something real and a force to be reckoned with and a force to be feared. And that was the first seed planted in Jones's mind that, aha, this game, this spiritualist charlatanism that I've been doing just for fun might actually be the key that unlocks the door to freedom. And that was how the hoax began. The Yozgad prison camp where all this was taking place was in the middle of modern-day Turkey. And at the time, in 1916, it was a village of abandoned Armenian houses. So a few of the prison camps that British and Australian prisoners were housed in were not actually camps in the sense of a series of huts surrounded by barbed wire and armed sentries. But rather they were parts of towns and villages that had been cordoned off. And it was usually the Armenian part of a town that the POWs were housed in because the mass deportations and killings of Armenian people that was happening in the Ottoman Empire from 1915 onwards meant that the Armenian quarters in towns and villages across the empire were were sitting empty. And it was this, along with the camp commandant's belief in spiritualism, that made such fertile ground for a plausible hoax. But Jones couldn't get to the camp commandant directly, so he began his long con with the camp's translator, who was known to the prisoners as the Pimple because of his oily demeanour. And this is how Jones recalls reeling in his quarry. The little pimple man glanced furtively up and down the lane to make sure no one was within earshot and lowered his voice to a confidential whisper. Can the spirit find a buried treasure? Oh, that depends, said I. On what? On who buried it and who wants it and whether the man who buried it is still alive or if he is dead on whether he can communicate. You want me to find this Armenian treasure? I went on, risking the Armenian bit. You know about it? The pimple asked in surprise. Did the spook tell you? I have had several communications, I said guardedly. You've been concentrating on the wrong places. I didn't know whether the pimple had been digging or merely thinking about digging. Concentrating covered both. We tried the schoolhouse garden, said the pimple, but did not find it. Of course not, said I. Digging at random is like looking for a needle in a haystack. 
the pimple was much struck by the phrase and made a note of it in his pocketbook. As far as the camp authorities were concerned, there could well have been money and jewels and other valuables buried in the area of the camp. And it was not improbable that an Armenian family from the town, knowing that they were to be deported or indeed killed, may have buried their riches. So over the next few months, Jones and Hill perfected what seemed to be a watertight plot centred on a non-existent treasure hunt with clues supplied by non-existent ghosts. Jones would take charge of the planning of the hoax and Hill would handle the engineering. The hoax was ultimately structured as follows. Jones had the board spin a tale of vast treasure owned by one of the local Armenians of Yozgat town and the... Armenian told three friends whom he expected to survive the war, giving them each one clue to the treasure's whereabouts. One told a compass direction, one told the distance to measure, the third told the spot from where to measure. So only when all three clues were combined could the treasure be found and dug up. Now it turned out that after the war, two of these three friends had died. Happily, Jones and Hill could reach their their spirits by means of the Ouija board. And there are marvelous scenes of Jones and Hill leading their captors over Hill and Dale to dig up these buried clues, which Hill had previously secreted in the ground. This is how Hill remembers it. When the piece of paper containing the first clue was found wrapped round a gold lira, the three Turks talked excitedly to and across each other. The commandant shook hands with everyone several times. The pimple almost exploded with enthusiasm. And to cap everything, the bloodthirsty-looking little cook tried to kiss Jones. Only with a tremendous effort of self-control, did I manage not to laugh? Then there's the problem of the third clue. Strategically, the function of the third clue is to propel the captors and with them Jones and Hill straight out of camp, from which point Jones and Hill will make their escape. So the man who holds the third clue is still living. So obviously a Ouija board is no good. Ouija boards can only talk to the dead. So they had to jettison the whole idea of the board and conceive a scheme that would allow them to read the minds of a living person over great distance. And so Jones comes up with this putative invention called the telechronistic ray known to the ancient Egyptians, and it allows one to read men's minds. The groundwork for belief in the telechronistic ray had been carefully prepared by Jones and Hill through their performances of mind reading. On the afternoon of 2nd of February, 1918, the prisoners gathered for one of their regular concerts, featuring singing, clog dancing, and courtesy of Hill, conjuring. And as I sat blindfolded on the platform, Hill addressed the crowd. As some of you know, 
I once underwent a course of telepathy, or thought reading, in Australia. And for the last fortnight, an officer in this camp has been my pupil. I ask you to remember that he is only a beginner. And if our show turns out a complete failure, you will, I'm sure, give him credit for his attempt. Then Hill proceeded to stroll through the room, asking audience members to hold up whatever they had in their pockets. Quickly, Jones, what have I here? Um, a a bit of wood. (gasps) Tell me what this is. E-pipe. Correct. It was all done by an awesome feat of memory, where a phrase like tell me or quickly related to a learned response like pipe or bit of wood. There were over 500 objects in this code, and so amazing was this act of mentalism that it made the telechronistic ray seem utterly plausible. There's just one hitch. They're not close enough. This kind of mental telegraphy, the telechronistic ray, only works over short distances, so they are going to have to travel to where the third clue holder is to be close enough to read his mind. And what do you know, where they determine this third clue holder is, is on the Mediterranean coast. The plan is that Jones, Hill, and their captors will travel there with their captors as chaperones, with the Ottoman government, by the way, paying their travel expenses for their escape. At some point, they will give their captors the slip, commandeer a boat, and sail across to join the British forces in Cyprus. But then disaster struck. On the eve of their departure, the overcautious commandant called the whole adventure off due to suspicions of escape. Jones and Hill were devastated. By now the plan had been over a year in the making. How could the spook conjured by the Ouija board help them now? The answer was to pretend to go mad. If they could pull this off convincingly, the camp commandant would have a legitimate excuse to take them to the asylum in Constantinople. And as this final phase of the scheme was being put into place, the two hoaxers kept a firm grip on their captor's imagination by developing an ability to trance-talk. I see a house. A garden. It is night. There's a man with a lantern. And a woman with a letter. The man is carrying a pick. The woman has lovely hands. But but, but, but they're gone. No. They're gone. No, no, they're still there. They're they're, they're digging. Yes, yes, you can see them by the lamplight. And out of the hole, they're they're dragging something. What, what, What is it? The man has smashed open one of the boxes. Oh, it's, it's gold! gold. It, it's gold! Gold! gold. Oh. The boxes of gold and... Oh. 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 And does that mean that the treasure hunt is off? No, this is what was so smart about what they did. 
The Commandant was such a believer he'd been so thoroughly brainwashed by Jones's and Hill's scheme, he never for a minute believed that they were going to betray him. He thought it was evil spirits working against him, the spirit of the Armenian treasure owner in particular, who, of course, wouldn't want anyone to dig up his buried gold. So, as far as the Commandant were concerned, he and Jones and Hill were still bosom friends at this point. And so he is involved in the next leg of the plot, which is the treasure hunt is still on, Oh, by the way, the holder of the third clue has moved from the seacoast up to Constantinople. And so, good news, everyone. If we're committed to a mental hospital there, we will finally be close enough to read his mind, learn the contents of the third clue, and you can have the treasure after all. So it was a second incarnation, a con within the con, of their original scheme. The plan worked, but it came at a cost. It included a faked double suicide that very nearly became real. And instead of being in the Constantinople asylum for a couple of weeks, they were there for six months, under the constant scrutiny of expert doctors. It almost cost Hill his life. But in another way, The whole scheme helped them both survive the war. So many prisoners of war really struggle with their shift in status from combatant to captive. Many of them feel like they've failed their country, that they were really ashamed at being captured or at having to surrender. Essentially, they felt really inferior. And for the prisoners of the Ottomans, this was compounded by the fact that they felt they were being held prisoner by an inferior race. So it's really important, I think, to remember that at the time of the First World War, Britishers, which includes Australians, really believed in their superiority, their racial and their cultural superiority. And the Ottomans, um, the non-Christian Ottomans in particular, were seen as uncivilised, as brutal and savage, as kind of backwards. So for those men who were taken prisoner by their Ottoman enemy, this sense of superiority was really deeply shaken. And so one of the ways they could try and reassert that shaken sense of superiority was by belittling or making fun of their captors and trying to get one over them, so to speak. For Jones and Hill, the foolery worked. Just. The armistice with the Ottoman Empire was concluded on October 30th, 1918 and went into effect the next day. And they arrive back in England after finally being signed off for repatriation, approved for repatriation as sick prisoners, barely two weeks ahead of the prisoners who had stayed behind. Which is how the story ends in Margalit's book. The mediums wound up reaching Britain barely more than two weeks ahead of their fellow captives. But though their ruse bought them little time, it may well have saved their lives. Freedom was our lodestar, Jones declared. And so they followed their lodestar home. (laughs) 
Marguerite Fox, reading from her book, The Confidence Men. And before that, you heard from war historian and author of Captive Anzacs, Kate Ariotti. Thanks to producer Lynn Gallagher, sound engineer Matthew Crawford, and readers Adam Crouch and Adam Morgan. You've been listening to The History Listen here on RN. I'm Kirsty Melville. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.